we were <laughs> at the point of New Orleans. You just you're. What I want to know is, let's see, you left New York, you moved, moved to New Orleans, yeah. And uh, and you, we did some discussion of like recording Golden Eagles and all that. And I guess you were working right. for OZ when you showed up as a case. Well, I wasn't really working for OZ. I kind of met those people, and at that point, OZ was really small, and it was just you know the serious music lovers, and they didn't have so many DJs and so much thing, and they didn't have Mark Cuban behind them. <laughs> Were you uh, were you working with a studio here at that time? Mm, you know, I tried to get a little. I had some gear, and I, you know, I got an eight track, and tried to do this and that. But I wasn't really there. None of the studios I was really hooked up with. And then, I think by eighty seven, eighty eight, maybe, I started working at this place, South Lake. I had I got a console. It's a long story, but I'm Michael Minzer, who was doing all the Ginsburg and all the poetry records. Um, he had a studio in Dallas, and he was like, I don't want my studio anymore. I'll give it to you for, you know, 50 grand. You can have it all. I'm like, Michael, I don't have 50 grand. He goes, 40 grand, I'll get <laughs> Michael, I'm not trying to negotiate. Just, you know, I don't have, I'm, you know. And he's like, uh, 30 grand. I'm like, Michael, I you know. And he goes, uh, he goes, 20 grand. Just pay it off over five years. I go, Michael, look, guys, this is really... He goes, okay, 15 grand. Pay it off over five years. I'm like, look, whatever you want to do. If you want me to get this shit out of your building, I will. So then I went there and I got this console, which is the console that ended up living at the boiler room. And there was the Trident that was never... Had already been kind of trashed at that point, but I didn't know. And... uh and I got a microphones from him that, like, my, uh, I think that KM84s that I have came from that. And are, there's still microphones that were been used, in use this week that yeah. I got from that thing. So I, I tried to find places to set that shit up. And eventually, you know, the South Lake thing, I had a room there, and it was kind of cool, and I did a... A Cleary record in there that was still in print. That's pretty cool. And it was the first time in the, that I got everyone to all the people were around the piano. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, Bunchy was like three feet. The bass drum was three feet away from mm -hmm. the piano. Mm -hmm. And George Porter and, and Willie Singleton and Amade Castanel and as I said, and Bunchy, Mike Ward, Ankongas, uh, Paul Baptiste on guitar. It's a really interesting session and clearing all live vocals. And it's a cool record that still is out in the world, you know. And that, so I, I started, and then I did a Mooney record in there. And then that whole thing kind of fell apart. And then there was this sort of netherworld time where, you know, and all that time I was going to New York and working, you know, and uh, running around. How did you uh, come across those musicians? Or how did they come across you to do that? Oh, the, with Cleary? With Cleary. Well, Cleary had come in here, you know, and Cleary was a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. And then he saw Booker and he started playing piano. Mm -hmm. And he just picked it up, you know. Mm -hmm. Cleary's one of those guys that can, yeah, can you know, that. go out into a field of frogs and pick, pick them all up and mm -hmm. make something no one ever heard before. So he met you how? I can't remember how we met. Maybe through Mooney. Mm -hmm. I'd been working with Mooney since the, I'd met Mooney in the early 80s when I got here. Oh, really? Okay. So, and so I had a thing with Mooney played. I made a record in New York in 85 
that Mooney's on. And it was great because it was Mooney and Steve Swallow and Joey Barron and Schofield. And it was, you know, so it was people I knew in New York coming to play my, you know, song songs as opposed to that really out stuff. And, you know, it was just a sort of a continuation of what I'd been doing in Indiana. I didn't really know what else to do. Here it was, you know, years later. How did uh, how did the Boiler Room come about? Well, Boiler Room, because Ken Devine, who was one of the guys that started OZ, and he um, he was the tech guy for OZ as well. And Ken, at one point, he gave the the Trident ended up in Ken's living room, and his wife Anita. Her name was Anita Softness, and she was in med school, and she was pregnant. So it was quite an experience that, um, you know, there I was like the fucking stinky fish in their living room for months and doing the Peter Stanfield record. So anyway, Ken was very supportive of my endeavors, and poor Anita would have to listen to this, you know, listen to the cry of the wild goose when she came home. And... um, Anyway, so eventually Ken was like, how do I get this guy out of my living room? And we found this, there was this building down the street that we loved, which was that, you know, that castle there. Uh-huh. And we checked that out, and it turned out that um, there were opening, there that boiler part was unrentable to anyone. So we got a pretty good deal on that for, a, I think it was a, how long was it, a six-year lease or something like that. And... Uh, and started hacking away at that. And then I remember getting, I got money from a bank, believe it or not. And they made me take an AIDS test which I, to, to borrow the money. Which, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That period. Yeah, that was the time. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so uh, the boiler room, oh, so that was up, in, when did that actually get to be up? In 93 in July. Now I've seen I think the first cut of it, that we ever did is in the toilet there, as there's a two-inch. Ninety-three. Yeah, 93. summer of ninety-three. Okay, so and, that was funny uh, and when we, I was in there. Yeah, was soon there, after. Right at, almost right after. We borrowed. I mean, we borrowed money from uh, the bank, and I got a Otari machine, which Otari the digital had kicked in, and ADATs had come in, and Otari's machines, which were usually sixty grand, I think, were selling for twenty-eight. So we. And, you know, at that point, it was still, let's just put it this way, very few records that we continue to listen to today were made on the ADAT format. (laughs) And some were, but mostly there was high-end digital, which cost twice as much as the analog. Then where's the analog? At that point, the analog machine makers started giving them away. So that's the only reason I ended up getting one. And I had a... uh, um, and, and we, we got this, we were doing a lot of remotes, and we got a one-inch 24-track and did a lot of remotes on that, and that turned out to be a terrible format. But um, terrible sounding, basically. Mm-hmm. But that would lock up to um, the um, um, to the big 24-track if you needed more tracks. But we, we got some jobs for some big TV productions where I would do the live mixing and out of we used the money for that to buy almost all the gear for the boiler room, which okay. was a great thing, you know. So a lot, a lot of these mics that I have today still, and that came from that run of money. 
There's usually, you know, it's like there's. And Jeff Treffner design was the architect for the. No, Je- no, Brooks Graham was the architect for oh. the thing. Jeff wasn't really an architect. Jeff built the place. Um, okay, so he and Jeff, an you know, I mean, Jeff thought up some shit that the architects didn't think up. I yeah. mean, Jeff thought, I mean, Al Firestein thought of this thing, like wanted this uh, sort of canopy thing. Like we had, so, you know, the idea is when you're referencing music, like a room like this would be impossible to tell where the balances were, you know. So you can't have a control room that's like this. You need a control room that's typically got an eight foot six ceiling that is got a bunch of like maybe eight sides and then within the eight sides there's walls that the sound goes through and you know it's a really it's it's not an exact science but people have it down pretty well as far as what's going to measure sound but suppose you don't have that and you want a big wide open room then you same way with this control room you have to go to uh different tactics of architecture to make sure and sound design to make sure that you get what you you place where you can measure the mixes properly mm-hmm. as you well know from working in your house and taking it and going the fuck yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well i mean you know, yeah you know that much more acutely than i do so and then uh, um what kind of uh, what kind of artists what was what was being recorded in the ballroom besides the new orleans club and all stars which i know about that yeah the new orleans club it, that was it just that for three years three years <laughs> it was when ben elvin and i had our great homosexual love affair oh it was okay. yeah. then ben went straight no <laughs> basically um I know Lump was in there. Lump. I've still got, man, I just got the Lump record again. I have it, and I'm just making another master of it, you know, just to have it because it's Amazing. such a good record. Well, it's, you know, and then it's, he's got this Norco Lapalco band. Right, yeah. Know, well, I see him out around now. Yeah. He's, and, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I, you by hook or crook, I united him and Delfio Marcellus, and they've become their Facebook friends now. No. Really? Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable, because, you know, I was with Ben Elman, we were in the van at Jazz Fest, getting off, getting off the stage where the Klezmers had been, and, uh, and we saw Del Feo out the window. Ben was already, Ben, as soon as he sees him, he starts singing the lump tune. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I gave him a lot of trouble the other day. He was wearing this short, this outfit that all matched, and the shoes and the socks, and, and I said, dude, your shoelaces and the ring around the top of your socks match. He said, no, they don't. You're colorblind. This one's, you know, he, he got all like, I said, I said, man, that's, you know, you're in the, that's some really country club outfit you got there. And he goes, it's country club, but not for the reasons you have professed. I'm like, what the hell are you talking, what kind of, what kind of lang- language do you speak? What are you, like, up there, what are you? You're cross between Cornell West and some, you know, orator in the 40s. What's, your, what's with you? you know? So, you know. It's great. It's always, uh, but, you know. So, uh, I'm trying to think what else did I see go down there. There was the Brady, Blue, there was Brady a, Blade stuff. Ah, uh, the Brady, well, Brady stuff. And, I uh, mean, we can't even talk about some of that, you know, just yeah. because that was so out there that there's no... I mean, the first Butte stuff, remember, this is 2011, and in 1994, Butte could not get arrested. Uh-huh. He was, you know, he was a pariah, the Snug Harbor, wouldn't, nobody would give him a gig. Uh-huh. And uh, he he was so mouthy at that point, you know, and even now he's like chilled out quite a bit, but he Butte would just say anything to anyone. And, 
It seemed like you're, uh, you, you had a you had a regular bunch of musicians that you were doing almost everything with there. You had Amnesty, you, know, you were in there with like Amnesty all the time. Well, Amnesty was sort of there, but it was Pacha, Pacha, June, Mike Ward, Raymond Weber, Cornell Williams, That's and then that was the core group. Who was that? Oh, Reggie. Reggie. Well, Reggie in there some, but that was more like the Charmaine side. Yeah, I was I mean, we had. Of, but I guess whenever I showed up. Then. Yeah, and and Reggie, you know, the thing is, Reggie was always enthusiastic about music, and Amity was too. Amity was great. Like when we did the Spider John Kerner record, which I still love. That's right. you know, a great. What's it called? Star Geezer. Uh-huh. That's a great record, and uh, Reggie played great on that. And obviously, played great, and Vidakovic is on that, and he's just amazingly good and he, playing that. He just cloned that guy's groove, you know. And in that period, let's see though, there wasn't that there weren't that many studios. In that well, it was more than there are now. <laughs> yeah, there are, right. Strangely enough, but I mean, yeah. Kingsway was around, right? Yeah, Kingsway, but that was Kingsway was for the the royal nomads, you know. Which, it wasn't you know, for the rest of us bums. You well, know? no, I, didn't, I was saying that the curious thing wasn't that there was a ultrasonic, but it seems like I mean there was a few others, of course, but but the, it seemed like you were you had a lot of local things going on at that point, but I guess the local right. scene was pretty opened up. And right. Thing. Whereas I mean, like now we're over here by three recordings. Half the world comes in here. Right. It's a, it's a different world now. Yeah, why did that happen? Um, I mean, why are there so many locals at that point? That's a yeah. boiler. Um, well, I think it was, first off, it was cheaper than ultrasonic. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think a lot of people. And then that other studio, the American Sector, came in. Oh, yeah. And that studio was also, that had more like the cachet of being upscale. They had the black leather couch, which we have now inherited, <laughs> and uh, you know, and the boiler room was more was so funky, you know, in terms of uh, there was, you know, it was in that place that was just like it was like a hell of a. I thought that room was incredible. It, the room was great, but outside it had the weird redneck guy that smoked cigarettes and hated all the musicians, and it had the the, the it was the uh, foam pad. Uh, recycling right. place right next to the studio, so there was all this like, f- you know, loose foam everywhere, and um, I, th- I think, you know, the boiler room. There were there were a number of things that happened where people came from out of town, and we did label things, but I think that had to do with people are you know get comfortable when. If somebody, if they know somebody can do something and deliver a good record, they don't care if it's in, you know, what the situation is like. Musicians are always going to come in and be grouchy about everything. It doesn't matter if it's the greatest situation in the world. So, the boiler room, we didn't have any, the headphone system was awful, as I recall. It was really hard to play uh, through some of the, that. And, uh, you know, but, I was like trying, you know, you try to get people to come in that, you try to do music that you like and you support and that you want to work with. And as you remember all that stuff, and I was always blabbing my bullshit to, to Ben Elman about money flowing, and you guys are looking at me like, what the fuck are you talking no. about? You know, and I say, no, no, you got to keep it moving. You got to keep the money moving or you get a stagnant pond. And they're like, what are you, Deepak Chopra? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, so so I just felt like that was, uh, uh, 
you know, that place was a great place to hang and a great place to play in that room. It didn't, it sounded like some old fucked up studio. It didn't sound like a modern place really. So people that came in wanting modern shit were often really left angry, you know, because it just wasn't going to happen. I think people left angry for us. Yeah, there's a lot of people leaving angry because they were, you know, at that point musicians always thought that maybe they were looking to blame their lack of success on whatever, whatever that they were engaged in. Well, yeah. Um, it, uh, that ha- I mean, you know, it's funny. There's less and less of that now, but I still get, I mean, to, to this day, I still get people that will ask me to help them. I help them. And then what they'll take an extra five hours on a mix procrastinating, and then they are always upset. They want even, it's like something is, like you can't fix it, you know. That whatever is the, whatever is that hole in there, in them, you, you can pour pour into it forever, and it's never going to get full for them, you know. So, so you, you get that a lot. And at first, when you have a studio, you're doing this work kind of work with people, which is kind of service work. So you're using, like, say, you're using your skills as an arranger and a composer and a player and a listener, and your experience as a listener to help other people get their music in the way that they would like it presented. So you have to see into a lot of things and, and make a lot of decisions based on, you have to have confidence that you can actually pull this off and see see into other people's desires or whatever. Which is, uh, and then, you know, when that doesn't work, uh, you can get a little ugly. Have you, uh, so, so then, when and why did the boiler room up? Well, Ken just, Ken took a job running uh, Channel 13 in New York, okay. and he, he was out of it. And then when Ken wasn't there, there wasn't a dad around to really run the thing. Uh-huh. And at that, and then we sort of, you know, I was having all kind of issues because I had kids, and all of a sudden I'm trying to do this, trying to do that. You know, it was just yeah. a freaking nightmare trying to, and I'd be riding my bike from the Bywater all the way over there every day. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a place like that, it's like there's, you can never quite make enough money. You know, you make a go at it, you make a living, but it's always like a struggle. So that became, and then the landlords were not very supportive and they kept wanting to do crazy stuff. And pretty soon they they took away part of the space and they built a Chinese restaurant in front of, first, first they built a, a spa next door and then they built a Chinese restaurant and then they wanted to take all this space away and then they wanted to double the rent and give me half the space and so that so I still had a year and a half left on the lease and at that point I was like no we'll be out of here in a year and a half you know and then that's what happened and we stayed and I remember this place we pulled all the gear out of the boiler room that had been sitting there for months in like maybe April of 2001 and the landlords were nice enough to let me keep it there because they were not they weren't selling the room so so you already had this building so. so we had this building and then all the gear and then I gave Tim Stambaugh my stuff for about a year and he'd had all his good mics and all that stuff and you know really got word of mouth going and uh, then he the thing for him then he had to go buy a bunch of Cole's mics and all that stuff 